Hello there, friends. Welcome to This Good Word. My name is Steve Weens, as always, your host. And I think this is episode 190. So we are inching all the way up to episode 200. And let me tell you, I'm not even going to say who it is, but uh, I've been in the process of lining up guests. Uh, the next section of guests, some of these people I, I find to be so interesting. And I can't wait to introduce you to them because... Mostly these are people that you don't know. I mean, they don't have a big platform. I, to my knowledge, they haven't been interviewed in a bunch of other podcasts. But man, are they interesting. And I find them to be really, really interesting. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, like one or two of them, you know, they, they actually do have, uh, you're going you're gonna to know who they are. Hillary McBride from The Liturgist is, is one of them. I can't wait to talk to her and then release it. But uh, many of the other ones are just these folks that I don't think you know, but you are soon, you're going to know. So, uh, hey, the the title for this one, episode 190, is called Beyond Literal, uh, Getting to What the Bible is Really Saying and Isn't Saying. And it's fueled by conversations that I've had with people who I can tell them getting, I can tell that they are getting a little frustrated by something that either me or someone else says. And then they sort of say something and I can tell they're very well-meaning and they're very sincere. And I don't think that they're trying to start a fight, but they end up saying something to the effect of, isn't the Bible really clear on that? Like if I say something that they don't necessarily agree with, that they think the Bible uh, does not say or does not endorse, they will say, isn't the Bible really clear about that? So I want to talk about what's happening there. And then I want to talk about an alternative way to look at the Bible that I believe holds uh, the inspiration of the Bible very seriously, and even the authority of the Bible really seriously. But it allows for a different way to understand it so that you aren't driven crazy by something that you know doesn't really make sense. Like it looks clear in the Bible, it sounds clear in the Bible, but then if you could sort of whisper it to another human being that doesn't have maybe the background of the Bible or in your religious tradition, they would say, gosh, that sounds crazy. Like, do you really believe that? And you might even scratch your head and say, I don't know if I really do. I'm just so confused because it seems like it's so clear. So two, two questions to tee up this conversation. And I think it's one, these are two questions to really actually think about uh, and even journal about or have a conversation with some other people, go out for a walk or uh, stop for coffee or, uh, you know, this is something to talk about if you're stuck in the car for a while. Uh, and one is, what are you looking for as you read the Bible? That's the first question. And I think it's fair, it, it, like it's really fair if your answer is, I'm looking for answers. I think that's really, really fair. And I don't want to say that there's no answers in the Bible or that you shouldn't look for answers in the Bible. But I think you need to understand that not everybody is. And if you're not looking for answers in the Bible, it doesn't make you a bad person. 
For example, you may be looking for uh, to see if the Bible addresses your question in the way that, that you have that really is sort of uh, keeping you up at night and um, making you wrestle and doubt and explore. Is your question really in there or is it not? Or maybe you are uh, looking for a new interpretation. Maybe you've heard an old story and uh, it really bugs you. And so you're reading the Bible because you want to see it in a different light. You want to see if there's some more layers that maybe you've missed. Um, maybe you're looking in the Bible to see if uh, you really to explore. Maybe you really haven't ever read the Bible, and so you really want to know what it means. And so you're just looking at it from sort of a 50,000-foot view, and you're just reading the stories, and maybe you don't have a lot of triggers, and maybe you don't have a lot of baggage. You're just really, you just want to read it to see what it says because you never have before. So I think the first thing is like this question, what are you looking for? I think we need to honor the different answers that we have. It's really okay. Like if you have someone, if you are talking to someone who is looking for something different than you are as they read the Bible, I think you need to pause and just honor that. And so maybe if you, if you hear someone that says that the Bible says this or doesn't say that and, and you feel yourself getting angry or puzzled you know what i mean by that never happens to me i swear to you uh it happens to me quite a bit but i'm learning to ask this question hey when you read the bible what are you looking for and i think that could start a conversation that's mutually beneficial and then i think a second question that's really helpful to ask yourself is how do you understand what the bible is saying how do you understand what the Bible is saying? And so, you know, we we know that it was written over several thousand years. It was written by different cultures. It was written by uh, different kinds of people over the span of a lot of different time as uh, the understanding of God evolves within people. You can see that pretty clearly, I think, in the scriptures, not to overuse that word, but you can see an understanding of God evolve and emerge that is greater and greater over the course of the Hebrew scriptures and then also the newer Testament, the newer covenant, um, especially as you read Jesus, for sure. And so, you know, if that's the case, then I think you need to ask the question, like, definitely I need to understand what the Bible was saying like if I read something from Leviticus, which is one of the one of the books of the Torah, one of the first five books, the Jewish folks call it the five books. Beautiful stories, beautiful um, metaphor, and really like provocative images of people and God. There's a lot of violence that might bother you. There's a lot of really transcendent love that might inspire you, but it's all in there, and. But it's also written by folks that had a very Bronze Age view of who God was and who people are. And so is it okay that the Bible, as it was written then, was written within the constraints of culture and understanding? Like that it wasn't, even if it was inspired by God, which I realize you, you may disagree with or you may agree with, even if you don't agree with that, um, maybe you need to be 
uh, like this is literature that has such deep and profound meaning uh, if you understand it a certain way. But I think if, if you force something that was written several thousand years ago to make complete and total sense in 2019 or later, uh, I think that then you're probably in danger of twisting its meaning into something that it really doesn't mean. So how do you understand what the Bible is saying uh, and what layers? So uh, let's dive into, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about three sort of areas where I think we get tripped up as we read the Bible and as we hear other people explain their view of what's happening in the Bible. So first of all, I really think, oh, and I need to say this, that this, I need to give credit where credit is due. Uh, I've been thinking these thoughts for quite a while now. Um, and so as they coalesced, I, I can't quite tell, you know, obviously what's sort of my original thought, probably, probably very little. And then what is other people? Um, but I really do want to say that there was a, uh, and I'll put this on the show notes, if I can remember. Uh, there's an article by Richard Rohr where, where he essentially talks about Midrash, and he talks about how Jesus really tended to read the Bible with the Jewish understanding of Midrash. And Midrash, I've explained this before on the podcast, but if you're new around here, uh, Midrash is a form of interpreting the times in which you live and the Bible as if the Bible was being re-announced, like on Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel and Torah, like there's this moment where God spoke and, and the words were recorded in some mysterious way. The people that, uh, that interpret the Bible according to Midrash really believe that every time someone gets together to study Torah, to study Scripture, they are also at the foot of Mount Sinai. Like they, 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 they sort of find themselves in a timeless moment where God can speak something new into their generation, even by reading the old stories. And so some of the principles are that if you search uh, through the hints and clues uh, that things aren't straightforward, there's even some contradictions in there. Maybe they're even on purpose so that you can go on a search. Midrash essentially means to search or to explore. And so there's a way of exploring the scriptures in which it's multi-layered. So there's not just one meaning, there's multi-meanings. And though the Bible is definitely based on historical incidents and things that happened, uh, it's, it, it's, it's not to be meant uh, as journalism, where the writers are trying to get the facts of the story 100% correct and unbiased. That, that really is not the genre in which any of the scriptures are read. And so when we, when we need for it to be to have journalistic integrity where like, you know, the eyewitness accounts are absolutely factual no matter what, we actually end up missing so much of the meaning, both what it originally meant, but also what it could mean for our time. So I'll give you an example. So uh, in the first book of Torah, Genesis 4, uh, in the first uh, let me give you a little bit of intro to that, just, just like 30 seconds of intro. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is all prequel. And it's like, you know, Genesis 1 is the creation of the world. 
Genesis 2 is the second account of the creation of the world, which is really fascinating. Many people don't even realize or remember or understand that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see two kind of pretty different accounts of how creation happened. It's amazing. And then we find in Genesis 3, the story of the Adam and the Eve, the first man and the first woman, and their temptation from the Satan and their fall and their hiding and then their meeting with God and their eventual expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And so we have that all in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. There's lots of questions you could ask about that, but we're not going there today, maybe a different day. And then we get to Genesis 4, and Genesis 4 is the very beginning of like life outside the garden. It's like the beginning of the era in which we still live, uh, which is post-Garden of Eden, Okay. And the very first story that's told is rather curious, if you really think about it. Now, the, the, one of the problems is most of us don't even ask this question. And the question is, why is the story of Cain and Abel the first story to be told in the book of Genesis when the humans are out of the Garden of Eden? Why? Have you ever, you ever thought, like, there, there, there was an intention to what story started out this story. And how you start a story is so important. And yes, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that's a, that's a really kind of dramatic beginning. But this is another beginning in, in, in Genesis 4. And what is written about uh, the, the topic that is chosen is meant to say what's happening in this story is going to happen throughout the entire book. That's what it's trying to say. So when you read a story about Cain and Abel, these are two brothers, uh, supposedly the sons of Adam and Eve, and one was a, a farmer of uh, animals and one was a farmer of vegetables, and Cain was the farmer of vegetables and Abel was the farmer of animals, and it came time to, to put, an, put a sacrifice, to make a sacrifice to God. And Abel, uh, it says, uh, brought the first fruits, slaughtered an animal, presented that to God. And Cain gave uh, some vegetables to God, right? And God was not pleased, we read, with Cain's sacrifice. And then what happens is Cain gets angry and, and uh, ends up murdering Abel. And so the first brothers... One of them ends up murdering another one. And, and God says, God starts a conversation with Cain. Essentially, why did you do that? And Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guard? And that question, am I my brother's keeper? It's so delicious because it doesn't really get answered in, in the text. If you read Genesis 4, I invite you to press pause. <laughs> Go ahead and do it. That question, am I my brother's keeper? It doesn't get answered in this story in Genesis 4. It's going to take the whole book of Genesis to answer this question. Now think about it. If, if, if you know the, the, the narrative arc of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis is about brothers who are in conflict and who are wondering if they're really the keepers of their brothers. Some of them murder each other. Some of them deceive each other. Some of them ignore each other. Some of them sell. Some of them for slavery. Um, so you have Isaac and Ishmael. You have Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob and Esau, that's what Jacob deceives Esau, steals his birthright, uh, and then runs away. Esau could have, and <laughs> some people would argue should have murdered Jacob, but he doesn't. He instead forgives him. Uh, and then we have the story of Jacob's sons, or Israel. Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, and then Israel's sons, he has... 12 and then 13, but one of those sons is Joseph, and he's uh, Joseph of the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, and he is favored by his father. He's given this this coat, and his brothers just hate that, and so his brothers throw him in a well, sell him for slavery, and it goes on and on and on until the very end of Genesis when, when Joseph ends up doing the hard work of forgiving and reconciling his brothers. And so the whole book of Genesis is really all about who is my brother and how do I make peace with him? That's what the whole book is all about. And that's why Cain and Abel, that story starts with that. It's just delicious, right? And so Again, do, do we want to get all literal? Another question you could ask about that, and this is a great mid, midrash question about uh, Cain and Abel, is this question, why did God not accept Cain's offering? Remember, Cain was the one that offered the vegetables. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've grown up reading this scripture text, you're going to say something like, you're going to say something like, because he didn't give his first fruits, uh, Cain. Or you're going to say something like, because God knew Cain's heart. You're going to say something like that, uh, some, some version of those two answers. But I'll never forget sitting in a room when uh, a rabbi was leading us through that story, and she asked us that question, why does God not accept Cain's sacrifice? And people were giving answers. And, you know, this is a room of maybe 120 people, and they gave various versions of those two answers, that God knew Cain's heart, and that's why he wasn't pleased with his sacrifice, or that it wasn't the first fruits, and God wants our first fruits. And then she paused after she heard all of our answers, and then she said this delicious proposition. She said, the truth is, the Bible doesn't say why. God does not accept Cain's offering. And, and all of us like went, oh my goodness. And if you look, look, look in Genesis 4, you will not find an answer to that. And so to that, she says, there can be many, many, many applications and many meanings to Cain and Abel, many meanings to this crazy story. But one of them is a question, and that is put yourself in Cain's position and the question is, what do you do when you feel like God treats you unfairly? Who do you lash out at? Who do you, and I'm putting this in air quotes, who do you murder? Whoa. Right? So now it's not just a story of a good guy and a bad guy and be the good guy, don't be the bad guy. It's a story where you are all of a sudden, you're in the story because probably if you've lived any length of time, past, you know, the age of 30 or 40, you're going to have a feeling uh, where God treat, has treated you unfairly. And then you're going to go, you, this story of Cain and Abel invites you to go on a journey where you can ask the question, what do I do when I feel like God is treating me unfairly? What, how do I respond to God, to myself, to others? Where do I go? 
How do I get angry? Is it okay to get angry? And now, uh, again, like, what are you looking for as you read the Bible? Man, if you're just looking for answers, Cain and Abel, it'll, it'll, like, the answer is going to be, you, like, it's important to give God your first fruits. And I think that's a wonderful application. I think it's great. I think that can take you uh, to a lot of different places for sure. But I think there's so much more that you can get out of that story. That's that's my point. So it, the Bible's not journalism. It's not, it's not just getting the facts straight, getting the answers and moving on. Historical incidents are the starting places, but the message often transcends the facts, right? And there's just there's so many examples of that. But let's move on to um, sort of the next maybe precept or principle. And this one is, I'm going to call it this, literal is the least helpful. The literal meaning is the least helpful meaning. And if you get super stuck on, was this literal? Is it not? Then you're just going to get a, a very, very shallow and foundational meaning. So I'll never forget, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a guy who, uh, he was hanging around the church that I was hanging around, and I remember he he just, he had a lot of questions, and one of his questions was, you know, about the Bible, I just, I don't know that I can get behind it because I, I can't, and then he brought up this example, this story, he goes, I, I just I, I just can't get behind a book that says it's God's word and that says it's supposed to be sort of without error. But it like one of the major stories you you hear about in Sunday school and other places is Jonah in the belly of the whale. You know this story? And so just super quick, there here, here's a story. So there's the guy, his name is Jonah, and God calls him to go preach good news to his his enemies, right? So think about like, you know. Um, Shia versus Sunni, right? So let's say uh, Muslims, right? So let's say Jonah was a Shia Muslim, and hey, go go tell the Sunni Muslims that God loves them and that God is just just radically, you know, accepts them and favors them. You wouldn't want to do it, probably. So Jonah runs away; he doesn't want to do it. But but he ends up in the bottom of this boat, and um. Then this big storm comes up and all these sailors who are supposed to be non-religious, non-godly, you know, they're like, hey, I think God wants us to throw someone overboard. Again, this is the superstitious, magical thinking, but real understanding of what they thought was happening. There was a big storm. So obviously what that meant is not that there was just a big storm. That's what we would think. They thought God is angry with us and God will not stop with this storm until we die unless we sacrifice someone. We got to throw someone overboard. So finally, Jonah's like, okay, throw me overboard because whatever. And so he gets thrown overboard. And then we read he gets swallowed by a, by a fish, right? Maybe it's a whale, maybe it's something else that's swallowed by a fish. And he spends three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. And then after three days, three nights, he gets spat out onto dry ground. He ends up in the place where he didn't want to go. And he has the opportunity to preach good news to his enemies and he does, and they all get, quote, unquote, air quotes here, saved. And the story ends. It's just four chapters, I think. He, and he's mad. Like, the story doesn't end well. He's just ticked off. He's pissed. He hates what just happened. And then the story ends, right? <laughs> anyway, so this, this friend that was hanging around this church, he's like, I just can't get behind it because 
I don't think it's possible for a human being to, to survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Like, is there oxygen down there? Wouldn't the digestive system sort of, you know, work to burn off his skin and, and, and kill him? Uh, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, you know, and I remember at that point really thinking like, well, I remember thinking to myself something like, and I don't remember what I said. I wish I did, but I remember thinking to myself, well, there just are some things you just gotta, you just gotta believe, you know, we don't know how it happened, but you just, you kind of have to believe it. And I know it sounds kind of crazy, but, um, but you know, I don't know. It's a really important story. So you got to believe it. You know, something like that. Right. Well, now I'm just at a very different place in it. I, because I don't believe the Bible's journalism where the main point is getting the historical facts absolutely and utterly correct. I, I be, because I think literal is the, the foundation level. It's the least helpful level. It's not, not important. It's just not the most important thing. So now I believe, even if you could prove to me without a shadow of the doubt that, there, that Jonah, this person, really never spent three days in the belly of a fish. Uh, maybe he existed, uh, and maybe he was sent by God to preach good news to his enemies. But the whole story of being swallowed by a fish in three days, three nights, I start to, again, with, with the help of Midrash, which, uh, in which I understand that there are hints and clues in every story, I hear the word, the, the phrase three days, three nights, and, and I start asking, where else in the scriptures is three days, three nights, right? And of course, you know, you have Jesus being resurrected, and there's several other places where really three days, three nights means death and resurrection, right? So then I ask, okay, even if this isn't literally true, I've been in a dark place where some way of thinking dies and some new way of thinking emerges, or or where I, ha I go through some suffering that I need to go through and I, I hate it and I don't like it and I'm questioning everything, but there I am sort of in the darkness and um, I think I'm gonna die, but something spits me out onto dry land, you know, something saves me. And then I go on to the next phase of my journey and maybe I am angry like Jonah is or maybe I uh, receive some new starting point but but I can see that story now. I don't need it to be literal for it to be true. Do you know what I mean by that? Like there's, I think there's a difference between literalism and something that's true. Um, I think we get we can get captured by a story, by a movie, by a novel. Uh, you know, is that is it true? Is it true? Like you would never you know, the, like the magic of a novel, the magic of a great movie. Someone says, well, did it, did it really happen? And you're like, ah, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't matter if it really happened. What does matter is what it's communicating, the message that it's communicating about the reality of life and death and suffering and hope and humanity and God and, and how it all fits together. That's what's beautiful. And so I don't, I don't, now here's the other thing and I'm going to blow maybe some people away by saying this. I also, I wouldn't throw it away if someone said, you know, it is true. Like, like if, if, if somehow, some way I could, I could just find out if Jonah and the fish was really true. 
And, and someone could say, hey, listen, this is the only truth I'm ever going to tell you in your whole life. It's the only absolute truth you're ever going to hear in your whole life that you can absolutely count on. But you can absolutely count on the fact that Jonah absolutely was swallowed by a fish for three days, three nights. He survived. He was spit out in a dry ground. I would throw up my hands and say, well, how that's so fascinating. And I would be okay with that. I know that sounds crazy. Um, but I still wouldn't, like, the 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 deeper meaning would have a lot more to do with my own journey of three days and three nights in the darkness in a metaphorical sense than it, than it would about an actual person being actually spit up on dry ground. Do you know what I mean by that? I think you probably do. Uh, okay. Let's, let's go to the third one. Uh, and so the third one is just, just this question. And again, this is all about the Bible, all about how to read it beyond literal uh, it's not journalism. Literal is the least helpful. And so this this third one is a question, and it's, what is the overall arc? Like, where is it going? Where did it start? And where is it going? Is your understanding of the Bible static? Meaning, it just is what it is, and it says what it says, and it's all equal. Every single word of it is equally true and equally weighted. Right, So whatever I read in one area, because it's the Word of God, is equally as true, and, and I should weight it equally as something in, in the other side of the Scriptures. Uh, sorry about that. I don't know what happened just there. Um, but, or, 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 is there a progressive understanding that where, where I can read something that happened many thousands of years ago, and it can have deep, deep meaning, but I can understand that its meaning uh, flowed from a different space and time and understanding of humanity and of God. And where it's going is always following the arc of more understanding of God, more understanding of humanity, more understanding of where this is all going. And so, uh, you know, for example, in Leviticus, there's this new law, and it's uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I think it's in Leviticus 20, 19 or 20. And it sounds kind of crazy right now. Like what it basically means is if someone pokes your eye out, you get to poke their eye out. <laughs> you know, If someone knocks your tooth out, well, you get to knock their tooth out, right? Uh, and it sounds a little, it sounds violent. It sounds a little barbaric. It's like, that's crazy. Like, would you tell your toddler that? Well, it's right in the Bible. Well, the truth is that in a, in a time of unrestrained violence where people, someone would steal someone's goat and then in retaliation, another person would kill five of their sons because they were so angry. And in that kind of unrestrained violence and lawlessness, the children of Israel were trying to be a different kind of people, reflecting the God that was gracious. And so that law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was meant to restrain the violence to you can't do any more than what was done to you. So essentially it's saying like, you can retaliate, you can get revenge. You can knock out a person's tooth if they knock out your tooth. You can poke out a person's eye if they poke out your eye. You can kill your friend's goat if they kill your goat. You just can't go any further than that. You can't take it further. So seen in that light, it was a great advancement in restraining violence. And it, it would have been seen as like, 
great grace and, and mercy. Well, of course, now it, it feels crazy and it should feel crazy because, um, because we, we understand more now about the nature of God, the nature of humanity. And we understand that that kind of, that doesn't go far enough, even though it was such a great advancement back then. Now we understand that doesn't go far enough. And Jesus himself in Matthew 5, he says this, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. Now we don't have time to get into what turn the other cheek means, but it doesn't mean just, just if you're getting abused, just let the abuser keep abusing you. Uh, it is actually a way of nonviolent resistance where you would challenge a person if they hit you uh you would challenge them to hit you in a kind of way that would bring shame on them if they did it and so uh it, this this kind of you know and this is where gandhi got all of his principles really was from jesus around nonviolence. uh so the arc is i was always moving toward growth and toward an evolving understanding of who God is and what God is doing in terms of redeeming the world and what humanity is doing in terms of understanding um, itself, understanding its place in history, and understanding how humanity will interact with God. So we don't have to take um, every odd and weird squiggly, squiggly? I don't know why I said that word, every odd, confusing phrase or story in the Bible as literal. We also don't have to take them as equally weighted. I don't think they are. And I don't think that anyone treats them that, even if they say, even if someone says, I treat every single word in the Bible the same. I give it the same weight. My answer is, okay, then have you, I mean, there's just so many, so many ways you could say, no, you don't. Have you eaten shellfish? Um, do you shave your sideburns? If you do, then you're not following the Bible. Uh, you know, all that stuff. So, but that's not to say like you should do that. That's just to say like we should have, have a progressive understanding of the Bible and where it's going. And so when you read something like, the whole law and the whole prophets are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, then it's like, okay, now we're, now we're understanding the, the arc. The arc is going toward a unified love for God, for people, and for yourself. And that law, the law of love, will trump any other weird, bizarre uh, thought, commandment, uh, whatever in the Bible that doesn't make sense. So uh, that's why many Christians, they say we have, a, well, maybe not too many, I don't know, say they have a Christocentric view of the Bible, meaning that the words of Jesus have the mo carry the most weight. And they even say when, when the words of Jesus um, seem to come in conflict with uh, something else, elsewhere, then you can feel pretty confident taking the words of Jesus. And some people really don't like that. Some people say you're just picking and choosing. To that I say, yep, that probably is picking and choosing, but you pick and choose no matter what you say, you absolutely pick and choose. So given the fact that I'm going to pick and choose, I will choose to pick and choose 
the words of Jesus, who I believe represent the most enlightened picture of who God is even now, uh, found in the pages of the scriptures. Okay, folks, I am out of time, but here's what I want to offer you. Wouldn't it be fun? Uh, if you have questions, email them to Steve at steveweens.com. And uh, we'll see if we can take a crack at answering some of them. Oh, I believe the Bible is beautiful. I believe the Bible is so helpful. It's a masterpiece. As long as you look at it for what it is, and as long as you don't look at it for things that it can't do, it's never going to tell you where to go to college. It's never going to talk about electricity. It's never going to, it's not going to imagine every single scenario that we find in 2019 and speak to it. Uh, so we have to read what it does say and do the hard work with other people who take it seriously to make some new interpretations. All right, folks, I hope this was helpful. I understand that it might have made some of you, some of you, maybe, uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that. I hope you are too. Uh, take that uncomfort somewhere where you can get some resolution or sit with the tension of it even better. For others of you, you might be thinking, oh man, you didn't go nearly far enough. That's okay. Uh, take that tension, take it somewhere else, uh, and go farther. Go as far as you can. All right, my brothers and sisters, so great to be with you as always. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together. <laughs>